I want us to think this morning about how we, how we might behave, how we might react if we were told we only had a few days to live, three or four days to live. That would be fairly intense, wouldn't it? It really would. I mean, what would you do? What would you say? How would you spend those remaining days with people? And I guess later after you had, you had passed away, your loved ones would think back about those days and they would, in a way, savour those last words. And they would probably take on new meaning, wouldn't they? I know when I think back to the last words I had with my dad, because last week was the, the anniversary, the third anniversary of his death. And I guess you think at those times, you think about, yeah, I mean, the last time I saw Dad alive and what was said in those last moments out on the driveway as we were leaving to come home. And, and I guess this is the situation that we find in Matthew 21. Jesus and his disciples had made their way south to Jerusalem for the very last time together. And in, in a way, Jesus' fame had gone ahead of him and the people greeted him with uh, jubilant praise. And we've talked about this over the last, coming, the last couple of weeks, and today obviously is Palm Sunday. This is the day that, that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the a colt, a little, the foal of a donkey, a tiny little animal. And he would have been dragging his, his feet along the ground, and the people laid down their coats before him and waved palm branches and said, Hosanna to the son of David. And uh, he came in riding gentle like that and they proclaimed him their king in a way. But within, within a few days, the religious leaders would be baying for his blood and many of those same people were screaming and yelling, crucify him. The, the disciples don't yet realise it. But over the next couple of days, Jesus' words would be so pointed, so confronting that the religious leaders would come to the conclusion that they needed to rid themselves of this uneducated upstart, this miracle worker from Judea. And they decided that this guy, Jesus, would have to die. You see, the thing was that shortly after the triumphal entry, Jesus started spending his time in the temple courts and there he was teaching and, and saying some very sharp, pointed things about the religious leaders And then he upset, he made a whip, he he upturned the tables in the temple and drove the money changers out with a whip, saying, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in those days for healing, and that's what they got, complete healing, this miraculous, powerful, stunning sign of Jesus' power and authority over all creation. The children ran around him singing and dancing and just celebrating his presence. And the religious leaders just looked on. And the next day, amidst all of the fanfare, they came to him and they asked him, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? They wanted to know, who gave you authority to do these things and to say these things? But Jesus just avoided their question. The thing was, they didn't recognise the authority in which John the Baptist came. And I mean, if the staggering miracles, the profound words of wisdom weren't enough, 
it wouldn't really matter what Jesus said to them about his authority. They had decided already to reject his message. So instead of answering their question directly, Jesus told these religious leaders three powerful stories. He told them the parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, and then the parable of the wedding banquet. And it's this last story, the parable of the wedding banquet, that I want us to focus on today as we head into this Easter week. The parable of the wedding banquet. It's, it's found in your Bible in Matthew 22. You might like to turn to that if you have your Bible. It will be up on the screen. Let's have a look at this powerful story. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who've been invited that I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his field, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. And he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man man there who was not wearing wedding clothes friend he asked how did you get in here without wedding clothes the man was speechless then the king told the attendants tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are invited but few are chosen that's one of those stories jesus told when he only had a couple of days of earthly ministry left. It's one of those stories Jesus told when I guess he was really wanting to make sure every word counted. Jesus said these words to the chief priests and the elders who came to question his authority. It is a confronting story, is it not? It's a confronting story because it is a story which includes every human being who has ever lived. And it speaks about the eternal, ultimate fate of every human being. Ultimately, ultimately, we all end up finding our place in that story. Let's have a careful look at it together. Jesus' parable is about the kingdom of heaven. He, he makes that very clear right at the start. He says that there was a king who was preparing a wedding banquet for his son. And for those first hearers, for those religious leaders, that would have triggered a whole heap of reminders about Old Testament scriptures, which they would have been very aware of. The king is, is always God. And the mention of the king's son and a wedding banquet would have triggered a whole lot of thoughts about the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed one who had come to liberate Israel from Roman oppression. So the king sent his servants to those who had already been invited to the banquet. 
It was the practice in those days to give prior notice about the wedding feast, just like it is for us today. We sent out wedding invitations some weeks ago. People know when the wedding is going to be. But in the first century, when, when the time came, the servants would go out and invite. They'd say, everything's ready. Come, come now to the feast. It's a bit like when, when whoever's do, cooking dinner says, dinner's ready. And then a few minutes later, I'm serving up. And then it's on the table and it's going cold. And then suddenly people scurry from everywhere. It's a little bit, it was like that. It was like that. Now in that culture, we need to realise it was very bad form. It was very bad form to refuse an invitation of this sort. To refuse an invitation, an invitation to a wedding feast was just not done. I mean, the wedding would last for many, many days. And it cost the family an enormous amount of money to put it on. The, the guests were expected to stop everything, stop their normal work, put everything aside for a number of days to attend the feast. People would save for their wedding feast for their whole life almost, their whole married life. They would be saving up for the day when I will have to pay for this wedding feast, for all of my friends and family, everyone to come for days and days and days. It was insulting to both the father and to the son who was being married to, to not come. We need to realise that. It was very insulting to not come. But to refuse the invitation of a king was nothing short of suicidal. To refuse the invitation of a king was basically saying, come and kill me. That's how much I want to offend you. To insult the king when he desired to honour you with an invitation to his son's wedding was just complete madness. No one in their right mind would do such a thing. And this point would not have been lost on the religious leaders hearing this story for the very first time. You just don't knock back this kind of invitation. Yet in this story, that's exactly what the original invited guests did. They simply turned their backs on the king and, and went off to continue with whatever they were doing. Verse 3 says, He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered. And everything's ready. Come to the wedding banquet. And get this, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. At this point, those religious leaders must have been thinking to themselves, because they know how parable works, okay? That's how they spoke. They know how parable work. They're trying to work out, okay, what's the point he's making? At this point, they must have been thinking, who can these people be? Who would do this? Who would be this stupid? Who would dishonour a king like this? But then it gets worse. Verse 6 says, The rest seized his servants, the king's servants, mistreated them and killed them. Wow. I mean, not, in, not only did they refuse to come, but they grabbed the servants abused them before killing them. 
And I guess in this culture, because they had no SMS, no email, no fax, no Facebook, a messenger in their culture, you just didn't touch the messenger. But the messenger was important. And I guess that's where that expression comes from. You know, I'm just the messenger. Don't kill the messenger. To kill the king's messenger, to kill his servant, was a direct challenge of the king. It was treason. It was a declaration of war. I want you to understand the weightiness, the, the seriousness of Jesus' story. What these guys did in refusing, refusing the, the gracious invitation of the king and then in abusing and killing his servants was just unforgivable. It demanded a response. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 7 says, The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So who are these invited guests? Who were the, the ones who were invited first? Who were those who would be honoured? They were to be honoured by being invited to attend the wedding banquet of the king and yet who dishonoured the king by turning their backs and ignoring him. We'll put very simply, it was the Jews. The Jews. Of all the people of the earth, they were God's chosen nation. God chose to reveal himself to and through the Jews. It was the children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, who would later on be renamed by God Israel. It was those people who, who were delivered from bondage in Egypt. It was this people who were given the promised land. And it was through this people that God promised to bless every tribe and nation on earth. It was this people, the Jews. The people of Israel were the first to be invited, yet they refused to recognise the Son of God in human form. And you know what? Within 40 years of Jesus telling this story, do you know what happened to Jerusalem? This is just history. The Romans came in and destroyed it. I mean, they basically didn't leave one stone upon another. They destroyed it. They destroyed the temple and they burned the city. The servants in the story are the prophets of old who brought God's message to them over many, many centuries, but especially the one who Jesus referred to as the greatest prophet, John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist, the one who cried out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. John the Baptist, who these men, these very men hearing this story, discredited and ignored, and just a few years earlier, they had him put to death. Remember Herod? the king of Israel, puppet of the Romans, he had Herod put to death. Oh, sorry, he, Herod had John the Baptist put to death. And then the final messenger is, of course, Christ himself, the true king of Israel, the true son of God. See, Jesus is both the servant who would be put to death in a couple of days, but he's also the groom in the story. He is the true son of the king. So verse 8 says, Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, 
and the wedding hall was filled with guests. I want you to notice that those who were invited first did not deserve to come. The Jews did not deserve to come. But God graciously invited them. God graciously chose them and said, I will be your God, you will be my people. But the people who were invited second, good and bad, did not deserve to come either. Just like the original invited guests, they didn't deserve to come, yet they were invited anyway. Jesus said the wedding hall was filled with guests. It was just, it was just packed. And it just seems like it's wonderful, doesn't it? It seems like it's just wonderful. But then Jesus throws this very disturbing little verse into the story. Verse 11, he says, But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. See, we need to understand something about the culture into which this story was told. In this culture, when there was a wedding, the host would not only provide all the food and the entertainment, but he would also provide the the guests with special robes for the wedding. And often they would come from his own wardrobe. Well, we need to understand this. See, clothing was not like it is today, relatively cheap. I mean, you can go into Target or or Kmart and you can buy a T-shirt for 15 bucks. I mean, clothing is very, very cheap for us today. But it wasn't like that back in the first century. That's why the, the Roman soldiers, after they'd crucified Jesus, they, they threw lots for, for his, his robe because clothing was so valuable. Now, clothing suitable to be worn to a wedding would have cost many times what a man could earn in a week. So, so there is a great significance in the fact that when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. See, this man had no right to be at the wedding feast. He wanted to be there. He he wanted to attend. He wanted to eat the king's food. He wanted to enjoy the king's entertainment. He, He wanted all of the blessing. But he wanted to come on his own terms, dressed as he wanted to be dressed. Well, the king's response was swift and decisive, just as it was with those who originally dishonoured his invitation. The king ordered that he be bound, hand and foot, thrown out into the darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what does all this mean for us? What does this actually mean for us living thousands of years later? Well, I'll bring you back to Jesus' opening words. The kingdom of heaven is like. This whole story is about the kingdom of heaven. The whole story is about the gospel. It is about those who are called to be saved and those who are not. Those who are not. 
That alone is a confronting thought, isn't it? Those who are not called to be saved. See, that last line, many are invited, but few are chosen. It's a difficult, difficult word to us. And it's about those who will enjoy eternal life with God and those who will spend eternity separated from him. And it's about three possible responses each human being can make to the king, to God himself. Let me be very clear about this. The wedding banquet represents eternal life. The wedding banquet is all about heaven. It's all about what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, in the Apostle John wrote these words, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He was talking about the wedding feast of the Son of God. When this same man, the Apostle John, was given a vision of heaven, and at the end times, he wrote it down for us in the book of Revelation. If we turn our Bibles to Revelation 19, we find the the final consummation of the church. This is it. This is when the kingdom of God is, is finally completed for eternity. And there we see the kingdom is now, but see, is he not yet? See, the kingdom has been ushered in, in a sense, but we're not, it's not finalized yet. With Jesus' death on the cross, everything was done to make the kingdom possible. Sin and death were dealt with. Our enemy, Satan, has been defeated and now we just await the Lord's return. But we have a look at this passage in, in Revelation 19. It's an amazing passage. Remember, this is John telling us what he saw in the vision of the future, of the end times. Verse 6, Revelation 19 says, When I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Get this. For the wedding of the Lamb has come. The wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Then he says, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And then it's almost like John has to, he thinks to himself, I just want to make this really clear. And then he adds, Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Which makes you think, hang on, the righteous acts, does that mean we does that mean we have to do this to earn our spot at the banquet? But no, hang on, it's made it very clear that we're given. We're given the righteousness. We're given the righteous acts. You, know, you, you were created to do good works. That's what the scripture tells us. You were created, you were redeemed to do good works. The righteous acts. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. I really want you to get that. Your righteous acts and my righteous acts are a gift from God. An opportunity to wear the righteousness that comes from God. You see, this is another image, but it ties so closely to Jesus' words to those religious leaders 
just days before his crucifixion. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who sacrificed for our sins. It's his wedding ceremony at the end of history. And who is his bride? Well, this is the amazing thing. The bride. It's us. It's the church. It's the church. Have a look at what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. He said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So you are called not just to the wedding feast as a guest. You are called to be part of the church, the bride of Christ. And when the original guest dishonoured the king, the invitation went out to everyone. And we see this in the book of Acts. You know, after the Holy Spirit was given to the early church, the, the gospel message spread, not just to Israel, but to the Gentiles, to people everywhere. Remember, Jesus said, go out. And it was like this concentric circles just widening and widening as they went out to the Gentiles. See, God's desire is that all would be saved. But sadly, there are three responses to the gospel, and we see them all here in the parable of the wedding banquet. The first response. Remember I said earlier that, that I think every human being who has ever lived finds their place somewhere in this story. And my challenge to you today is to try to place yourself here in this. The first response is rejection. The rejection by those who ignored the king's invitation. See, some turned their backs on the king's servants and went back to their fields or their businesses, basically saying, get lost. I couldn't care less about your wedding banquet. I couldn't care less about you or your son. Just leave me alone. Get out of my face. I cannot tell you how many times I've had people basically say that to me when I've talked to them about God. Do I look like I need a crutch? One guy said to me, do I look like I need help? And then he pointed at his four-wheel drive, which looked very flash then, but I guess nowadays would look really quite old and tattered, and his new boat sitting in the driveway. Do I look like I need God? See, they were indifferent to the king's gracious invitation to eternal life. The others aggressively attacked the king's servants, abusing them and eventually killing them. Their response was nothing short of treasonous, a direct attack against the king. Now, I read this, this week that, that it is now estimated that someone is being killed for being a Christ follower every 11 minutes. It's amazing, isn't it? That, uh, yeah, 30, about 30% of all humanity, when they're asked what religion I use, says Christian. But someone is dying for being a Christ follower every 15 minutes, basically. Someone is being put to death. 
You know, Jesus' words were spot on, weren't they? They really were. So that's the first res- response. Many simply just reject the invitation to eternal life. They turn their backs and walk away from God. Let me say that is an unacceptable response to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That is an unacceptable response to the living God, maker of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. Rejection of the living God is a serious thing and it results in being cast out of his presence. You know, if you're removed from the presence of the author of life, the source of all goodness and righteousness and love and grace, the one who is light, there is only darkness. There is only unrighteousness. There is only the absence of life, which we call death. There's hate. There is ungrace. And as a result, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, Bill Hybels says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says, it is deep regret is when you finally realise what you've done. You realise what you've done, but then you realise there's nothing I can do about this. It's just that, ah. So that's the first response. Rejection. Second response is to arrogantly expect to receive the blessing of God, not on his terms, but on your own terms. Now, sadly, I would have to say that a large proportion of the 30% of humanity who put their hand up and say, yep, I'm Christian, probably fall into this category. Because Jesus said on more than one occasion, many will think that they're there at the, at the feast. But you see, in the end, every human being, what it comes down to is the word of Christ over your life. Now, we have the Bible, which is the word. John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We have the word of God. In a sense, the word of God is the messenger. It reveals God to us. It convicts us of sin. At the end of the day, though, it is the word of Christ that's the final say. Oh, it doesn't matter two hoots about your four-wheel drive or your boat, does it? Because in the end... The only thing that matters is whether Jesus says, welcome, or he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. There will be so many people who go, no, hang on. What about all these things I did? But say, I never knew you. And it's a graphic illustration, isn't it? Where he says, Friend, how did you get in without the right clothes? So the question is, well, what what are the clothes? Well, let me say this very clearly. The clothes the man was missing is the righteousness of Christ. You you have to get this. Have, Have another look at the passage from Revelation. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. 
It is the righteous acts of the saints which are the wedding robes and they are given to us by God. Psalm 132, it says, May your priests be clothed with righteousness. That was what it said in Psalms. And who are the priests? In the end, the New Testament says we are a kingdom of priests. We are all priests. So when in Psalms 132 it says, May your priest, may your church be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. You know, that, there's also that incredible passage from Isaiah 61, the one which Jesus said was fulfilled in him. When, at the start of his ministry, he opens the scroll, he reads this passage and he goes, This is fulfilled today in your hearing. <laughs> That same passage, and the the one which refers to the marriage of Christ with his people, same passage, also says this, this verse 10, he says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. Get this? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest... And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. If you want to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb, you need the right clothes. And the right clothes only come from Jesus. And that's why he's the only way. That's why. You cannot be at the celebration, the wedding of the Lamb, the kingdom of God, eternal life, without the righteousness of Christ, the garments of salvation. That's why you can only be saved through Jesus because he's the only one whose garments are righteous in the eyes of God. See, some want the blessing of God on their own terms. They want to wear their own clothes. They want to rely on their own righteousness. But that just won't do. God said through the prophet Isaiah that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Do you see how that actually ties in? So your righteousness is just like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of Christ, which Revelation says is bright and white and wonderful. See, the Father says that our righteousness is unacceptable. Unacceptable. And once again, the, the response is rejection from his presence where there is darkness and death and weeping and deep regret. They are the two responses to God, which are just unacceptable. People either just indifferently turn their back on God, telling him to get lost, or they want God on their own terms. Both responses are unacceptable. Both responses are unacceptable. But there is a third response. third response is the only acceptable response. The third response recognises the amazingly gracious invitation of God and it recognises our need for the right clothes, the righteousness of Christ. And there's only one way to get the righteousness of Christ. You need to become a follower of Jesus. You know, the first thing that uh, is recorded that, that Jesus said to Peter was, come, follow me. That just changed everything for him. It's just so simple. 
He says, come, follow me. You know the last thing? The last thing Jesus says to Peter. You go through the whole story. He walks in for three years and then he denies even knowing him. And then up on the lake, Jesus appears to him again. You remember the story? He goes, Peter, do you love me? Three times. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. The last thing. Come follow me. Then he goes, disappears. Come follow me. So simple, isn't it? There's two responses which are unacceptable. The third response is the only acceptable response. And it's really simple. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Romans 10 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, it's open to everyone. Whoever. Just like in Jesus' story, it is still not too late. I want you to realise we're still at verse 10. We're actually at verse 10 in the story. The wedding guests are still being called. The wedding guests are still being called. But just let me remind you, you're only called up to a point, aren't you? When you bury someone, as I did this week, when you bury someone who's sat here for years smiling at me, a good friend, Iris. Praise God, Iris responded. We know that she responded. But you're only up to verse 10 in the story until the day you die. And then it all comes rushing ahead very quickly. It is open to everyone. The wedding guests are still being called. But how do I do that? How do I become a follower of Jesus? I don't know, many of you would say, oh, I've done this already. Let me just go through the four steps because when you're telling someone else about this, you need to know what the Bible says about this. Step one, admit that God has not had first place in your life. Admit that he has not had first place and ask him to forgive your sins. The Apostle John said, if we confess our sins, you know, confession is agreement with God. It's just that simple. Yes, I have sinned. Yes. You have not been first. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And cleanse us from every wrong. You know, encapsulated in that, and with everything else we've read today, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Not only does he wipe the slate clean, but he goes, friend, here is your coat. Here's your wedding garment. And you're going, whoa! In those words... That's the wedding garment given to you there. He wipes the slate clean and he gives you the brand new life. Second thing we need to do is believe that Jesus paid for your sins and that he rose again and is alive today. The Apostle Paul said, Romans 10.9, If you confess that Jesus is your Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Romans 2, Romans chapter 2 says that everything we need to know about God has been revealed 
through what he has made so that men are without excuse. Whenever anyone says to me, yeah, but I just don't, I just can't believe. I really struggle to believe in God. I can't help thinking, that is so Adam, isn't it? That is so Adam. Adam, what have you done? The woman you gave me tempted me to sin. It's your fault. If only God would reveal himself to me, make it easier for me to believe, but I just can't. So I'm going to choose to not believe. The Bible's very clear. Everything that's needed to be seen about God is seen by just what he's made, let alone all the revelation that comes from the Bible and the life of Jesus and the church over the last 2,000 years. Number three is accept his free gift of salvation. Don't try to earn it. You can't just accept it. Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You know, accepting that free gift, I think that's illustrated so well in the, uh, the rich young man who comes to Jesus. And he tries to make it all about this kind of, ah, oh, you're a great teacher, you know, you're a good teacher, aren't you? You're a great teacher. Let's have a bit of a discussion about eternal life. It becomes very clear that Suddenly Jesus says, don't call me good, only God's good. Then he makes it pretty clear that he is God. And in the end, he says to the guy, if you want to really be perfect, sell everything. Sell everything you've got. Come follow me. (laughs) Once again, it's so clear, isn't it? He knows this guy's heart is just right tied up in all of his possessions. It's just simple. Just come follow me. In other words, accept Accept me and follow me. But he can't. He probably even knows this guy. He says, I've done all this since my youth. He knows the word of God. He knows. But he cannot accept. See, our relationship to God is not restored by anything we do, but on the basis of what Jesus has already done for us. And then finally, we need to receive. Just receive Jesus Christ and invite him to come into your life and be the Lord of your life. Verse, verse uh, 12 of John 1 says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And if you would like to do that now, if, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, Gee, I have, I've been listening to this stuff for a long time, or maybe you're just hearing it, You think, no, I actually want to do something about that. Just between you and God, we can do this right now together. We can can do some work with God that will change your eternal destiny forever. And if that is the desire of your heart, I would just pray that we would just be able to do that work now. Let's bow our heads and pray together. I'm not going to ask you to come out the front or put your hand up or do anything. This is just between you and God. You might like to just pray these words after me. Dear Lord Jesus, 
Thank you for making me and loving me and continuing to pursue me even when I've ignored you in the past, even when I've defiantly wanted to walk my own way. Lord, thank you for hanging in there with me. Thank you for bringing me to this point today. I know I'm not here by accident. Lord, thank you for bringing me here to this point today. And I now realize I need you in my life and I am sorry for my sins and I ask you to forgive me. I agree with you. I'm a sinner and I need your righteous clothes. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. And I ask that you would help me to understand the significance of that for me. And as much as I know right now, I want to follow you from now on and I want you to keep revealing yourself to me and I want you to come and live within me. I don't understand how that works, but your word says you will. You will come and live within me and you'll start changing me from the inside out. And I've got so many questions, but I just... I know you're going to reveal these answers to me, but just now all I can say is I want this. I want this. Come and make me righteous. I want those wedding clothes, your righteousness. And I accept that gift of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that for those of us who prayed that prayer, many, many years ago that we would continue to pray it. Over and over and over. Not in any way to earn our salvation, but just to keep ourselves aligned so that we know what life is really about. And Lord, I pray that we might share the truths held in this story with as many people as possible because the invitation is there. The invitation is there. And the responsibility has been given to us, your church, your body on earth, to bring people in and invite them to the glorious wedding banquet. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.